Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, hopefully you've gotten to Psalm 14 already. And uh, we'll take the time with this great psalm here. And I'm reading from the New King James Version on these Sunday nights. But So the inscription reads, The characteristics of the godless to the chief musician, a psalm of David. So it says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. That's a tremendous thought, isn't it? The Lord looking down. Uh, The Lord sees. Uh, Many different scriptures talk of that God knows, He sees, He observes. And uh, that that should keep us on our toes, you know, uh, because we know He sees and by His grace overlooks when we repent and turn to Him. And uh, then he's looking to reward those who have come to know him. But the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. Verse 3 says, They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread? That's a picturesque image. They eat up my people as they eat bread. Nothing to them to hurt God's people. And do not call on the Lord. There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous, yet shames the counsel, you shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So you got a portrait of sinners here, the characteristics of the godless. Now, what other psalm is almost exactly the same as this one? I imagine there's somebody out there who's got a note in your Bible and it tells you. Turn. Psalm 53. So write Psalm 53 there and you're filling the blank. And then let's turn over there. And there are, uh, there, there's just a little bit of difference between them. And let's see if you catch it as we read through. So you might even want to do what I'm doing. Look at this here. You got it going back and forth like this. I got both side by side here. Psalm 53. It says over on Psalm 53, a portrait of the godless in the New King James heading there that uh, the New King James authors uh, uh, put as a heading to each chapter. To the chief musician set to Mahalath, a contemplation of David, uh, a mascal of David. So here we go. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great fear where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. 
You have put them to shame because God has despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God brings back the captivity of His people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So tell me one of the differences you saw. So in Psalm 14, how does he describe the Lord? He uses the name many times. L-O-R-D, Lord, Yahweh. In Psalm 53, sometimes that where it says Yahweh in Psalm 14, it says uh, Elohim or God in Psalm 53. So that's the uh, one difference. You know, the name is used a little bit differently there. And then there's, um, you might, might have noticed that Psalm 14 has seven verses, even though it's mostly the same content. And Psalm 53 has six. And there's one verse that has, uh, that, that's uh, different in uh, the two. So uh, do, do you see which one it is? With my Bible, I can actually lay them side by side. Which is, see what I did there? I folded it up and put it over there, and there it is side by side. Verse 5 uh, in 14 says, There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Um, in Psalm 53, it says, There they are in great fear, where no fear was. They didn't fear, but they're going to fear. <laughs> God will teach them to fear Him. For God has scattered the bones of Him who encamps against you. So still with the theme of God's protection of Israel. But, uh, so think about all the living armies that have come against Israel during the time of this writing and other times. And we read in the end times, the armies of the world under Antichrist leadership will come to take on Israel. And we're told that uh, basically uh, God will say drop dead, they will, and there will be a feast for the birds, you know, and things like that. Uh, so he, I love verse 5 in Psalm 53 because it says, they, there they're going to be in great fear where no fear was, for God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. So the living armies camped out like they're going to take on God and take on Israel, and God's just going to scatter their bones, you know, uh, throughout the land. Uh, there's another time Ezekiel talks about a war, uh, Gog and Magog. It looks like this one is even before uh, the time of the tribulation, some grand uh, battle uh, where it will take uh, seven months to bury the bodies, you know, of those who attack Israel in that time, which is very interesting. Um, so verse 5, just a little bit of difference there in, in the emphasis, but still overall most of the same things. So when God really wants you to get the message, He repeats Himself. You know, parents do too. I need you to get this and get it now, right? And of course, the greatest message of the Bible is the gospel, so it's repeated four times. Uh, Israel's law was so important, God repeats it a second time. Deuteronomy is the retelling of much of the information from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. The time of the kings is so important that First and Second Chronicles retells what happens in First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Uh, but uh, this message to atheists, this message to those who say there is no God, is so important that two different psalms open, and they're mostly the same content. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So don't be a fool. 
Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 teach us. Think about all the atheists that you hear on TV, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, it was a, yeah, Christopher Hitchens wrote a book about how based on growing up, he decided to turn from God. His brother Peter wrote a book that said based on their upbringing, he decided to turn back to God, you know? Um, and uh, th those were both really good books. Bill Mayer, Marr is a, a wise in his own eyes kind of guy, often reinforces atheism. Sam, uh, there's a Sam, somebody out there that does, and there's a new wave of atheists that come out every few years. In God's eyes, the Scripture says they're fools, ignoring the overwhelming evidence for a Creator. Like Romans 1 says, what is evidence of God's creation is power. It's evident. His invisible attributes in creating things and sustaining things is evident uh, through what's been made. By the way, now have you ever thought about... I don't know if I've shared this uh, here or not, but here we go. Here we go. Um, I heard, uh, I believe it was, give me give the right credit here, I believe it was my pastor, uh, Joe B. Brown from the Great Hickory Grove Baptist Church, I first heard say this. And I've tried this on people before, and it has worked. Not necessarily to bring them to salvation, but to get them thinking in a process that would start them thinking about how foolhardy it is to make the bold and brash declaration that they are an atheist. And that's what I called myself before I was saved. Sometimes I would say I was an atheist and a Catholic in the same sentence. Shows how little I really knew about either one, right? You know? Um, so, um, so a person says to you, I'm an atheist. And you're like, oh, that'd be interesting to talk about a little bit with you. Um, so uh, the first thing you'd say to them now, uh, uh, well, are you an atheist or an agnostic? And they go, what do you mean? And you say, well... Um, an atheist is boldly declaring that there is no God. So let me ask you this question. Is it possible that God exists outside the realm of your knowledge? I mean, millions and billions of people around the world believe in God or gods or something like that. If you're saying there's no God, not any kind of God and stuff like that, then, then you're saying uh, you... Uh, uh, know all, enough knowledge to boldly declare that every, all them people are just absolutely wrong and fools and things like that. So is it possible for God to exist outside the realm of your knowledge? I, I guess so. And I say, well, if, if you really feel that way, you're, you're less of an agnostic, an atheist that says, I can boldly declare there is no God. Uh, the Bible says that person's a fool, you know. And you're more of an agnostic. An agnostic says there might be a God, there may not be a God. I don't know. Gnosis means knowledge, and agnostic is a person that says no knowledge. I don't, I don't know. There may be, there may not be. And oftentimes, if this person's still with you, they'll say, yeah, well, that's what I am. I'm an agnostic. I'm not saying, okay, so, well, we've made, we've made some progress, you know, uh, because the Bible does say flat out you're a fool if you say there is no God based on... Uh, you know, creation, other things. There's a lot of evidence that way that seems to, you know, if you saw, if you were walking in the woods and saw, uh, you know, a phone on the ground, you wouldn't say, gosh, you know, random accident that it's here. You'd say that shows design and you can use it for all kinds of good things. The old watchmaker argument, you know, that somehow uh, that, that, that didn't fall off the tree. The watch didn't fall off the tree. The iPhone didn't fall off the tree. You know, somebody designed it and somebody's lost it and put it here, you know. And, of course, we believe that someone is God uh, that uh, made the creation, you know. Um, so if you can get them that far, move them from atheist to agnostic. And I, I've seen people's eyes in there. Oh, yeah, you know, and, and you're just trying to get them to think. And, and uh, 
than saying, okay, so now you say you're an agnostic. Is that right? Okay, I'm an agnostic. They think they're done with you. They can leave you. But if you are still got them, you can say, well, now let me ask you this. Are you a sincere agnostic or an insincere agnostic? And then they say, oh, what do you mean by that? And it's like, well, an uh, insincere agnostic says there may be a God, there may not be a God. But I'm not even going to take the time to investigate. I mean, even though uh, every, uh, you know, Muslims have their own view of the consequences of not following Allah and Christians believe if what they teach is right, you know, that there's hell to pay and all these different things. An insincere person says, I'm not in, uh, just not interested in any of it, you know. And if this person started out wise in their own eyes, they probably wouldn't be viewed as sincere versus insincere. And uh, but it's fun to get them even to admit that they're insincere that, you know, so you, you talk about being on this grand quest for truth. And yet you're not even willing to, to, to check these things out, to set religion side by side, see what they teach, uh, to uh, not put them, lump them all together. Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, we all believe very different things. And you shouldn't lump us all together, you know, uh, very different radical views of viewing the world and stuff like that. So anyway. So if they will say, well, I want to be a sincere agnostic, you say, well, good. Now, since you're on this quest for truth, <laughs> can I share with you the claims of Christianity, you know, and go afresh and maybe relate it to a problem like suffering, you know, where everybody's got to have a view of suffering. Uh, atheists believe, you, you know, it's all a cosmic accident, no reason, no purpose for suffering, no good can come out of it, so avoid it like the plague. And, uh, you know, just not, don't, don't put yourself in a position to do something heroic for others because, you know, because um, that would mean your own death and you wouldn't be here anymore, you know. And, of course, uh, Eastern religions teach that the reason people suffer is because of something they did in this life or a past life. And that seems harsh, you know, that uh, and in those cultures, sometimes they'll shun a person who's suffering and they'll say, come on, what'd you do? Like Job's friends, what'd you do? What'd you do to deserve this, you know, in this life or a past life, you know? And, uh, and uh, Buddha was actually rejecting that Hindu teaching when he came up with Buddhism. Did you know that? He said, Hinduism teaches suffering as an illusion. No, suffering is real. This is real, honest suffering I'm seeing here outside the palace. Um, but then he had the foolish thing that people suffer because they have wrong desires. The reason why it hurts you so much that Pastor Lamar has died is because you were too attached to him. You weren't indifferent enough in your meditation, you know. And they would make that about any family member or any act of horror around you and things like that. You're so attached to material things that when something that we perceive as bad happens, it's because of your wrong desires. Well, that's just awful, you know, teaching that and stuff like that. Of course, there's also no hope for later on with these uh, teachings. Nirvana is the teaching that when you die, uh, you will just become a drop in the ocean and lose all sense of personhood. Uh, and you're just part of the whole going forward, you know, and they throw some reincarnation ideas in there. Um, and of course, the Christian comes along and just, it reads like a gospel track, doesn't it? You know, God has a purpose and plan. We're not experiencing it because of sin in the world. That would still be hard to swallow when something like this tragic death happens, you know, but it's not like God hasn't himself acted in time uh, to do something about human suffering. He, he's owned it in a very real way. We talk about respecting people who have skin in the game. I don't know if you ever saw that show, one of those investor shows, but one of the main things they want to know is, how committed are you to your idea? 
<laughs> you got this great idea. You could make some money doing it, but how committed are you to your idea? And they usually, the investors usually respond better when it says, I'm so committed to this idea that I've put all my life savings into this. If this doesn't fly, I ain't, I'm, I'm, I'm done. At least for now, I'm done. And they'll go, well, if, you'll put, if you're putting it all in, you're banking on this for your livelihood and to go forward, we'll put a little bit in too. You know, we'll put a little bit of our fund in, you know, and the, but we want 50%, you know, <laughs> or whatever they, they're taking the cut is and they argue and negotiate from there. God has skin in the game, came to earth. Suffered the most brutal death, right? Died on a cross. Rose from the dead to show his power over death. For those who embrace him, two things happen. Uh, one is they say, whatever things I see around me that are unjust, I want to do something about those now. Christians, there have been some Christians that have been passive in the face of suffering. There were Christians that perpetuated slavery and Jim Crow laws and other things. But thank the Lord, there are also Christians on the other side of just really hitting those things head on, you know, and, and doing something about it. Ending the British slave trade and all that stuff and you know, that sort of thing. So we act now and we believe that the best is yet to come. So there's hope for now and for the future. And I can tell you, all the other ones we mentioned, atheism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, etc., you know, there is not the word hope. It's not in there. It's just not, you know, the way Christians have hope. So anyway, if our friends have stuck with us this long, maybe they're at least thinking, have something to think about. So this is a wisdom psalm. It's definitely one of the wisdom psalms, making clear that only a fool professes atheism. Well, maybe your notes in your Bible help you out with this too. What New Testament passage does verses 1 through 3 remind us of? Can anybody help with that one? Romans 3, 10 through 12, uh, and it's worth taking the time to turn that, uh, turn there because that great Romans 3 argument, if you've ever learned the Romans Road, um, chapter 3 is definitely in there. And I have a little note that when we get to verse 12, it says Psalm 14, 1 through 3, Psalm 53, 1 through 3. <laughs> Those are in there. So verse 9 says, What then, Romans 3, are we better than they? Not at all, for we previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they all are under sin. As it's written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's no one who does good. No, not one. And of course, I told you the note there says those three verses go back to Psalm 14. So Paul begins this great argument quoting Scripture with our text for today and goes down, of course, to Romans 3 where he says in verse 23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's pretty awesome. So Romans 3, 10 through 12 
So let's go back to Psalm 14 there. I guess you could have 53 open or Romans 3 also there. But um, according to the first three verses, what are the words that describe humans apart from God? Just throw some of them out there. They've turned aside. What else? Corrupt. What kind, of, what kind of works have they done? Abominable. Things that are an abomination. Things that just uh, probably still shock the angels, you know. Um, so that's an interesting study for you sometime uh, to um, use one of the resources uh, that take a word study and turn it into the Hebrew words and the Greek words and things like that. Study the word abomination sometimes, the uh, practices and sins that uh, are called an abomination uh, in the Bible. Uh, very interesting. Things that uh, just um, uh, are sins that uh, are, are just such a disgrace. All sin is a disgrace. It's all corruption. But what else does it say here? They, not just that they are corrupt in verse 1, but verse 3 says they've together become corrupt. <laughs> and it's twice, what statement's repeated twice? It's in verse 1 and verse 3. Yeah, there's none. None. None is all of us. No one who has done good. And so you really see... Uh, that uh, and, and it says here in our in ourselves, no one seeks God. I know sometimes we talk about churches being seeker friendly, but the reality is, uh, dead sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, are looking out for number one. They're looking out for themselves. Uh, sometimes churches, and you can you can benefit from this practice a little bit, but. You know, sometimes churches will say, we, we need to uh, tailor our services, you know, what we say and, and what we uh, sing and other things so that we can draw, uh, help, help draw seekers to Christ, you know. And of course, the scripture says, wait a second, you know, there ain't no, nobody seeking God, you know, without the Holy Spirit's help. You know, nobody is uh, inclined to say, oh, what a great message you Christians have. You know, the, uh, the gospel really does, does need to be offensive before it can help us. Just like when a doctor says, bad news is you're going to die. The good news is we can treat it with chemotherapy, but you're going to hurt before you heal, right? You just have to face this head on. And if you deny that there's a problem inside of you, then uh, there you go. You know, you just uh, call hospice on in, right? You know, so, um, you know, when, when they told us Elizabeth has cancer, uh, you know, but we could we could go after it and, you know, shrink it and cut it out. And, you know, and then uh, you'd still have a lot of great life on the other side of it. We said, sign us up, you know, and uh, but it was painful and it was hard watching her hurt, you know. But sometimes uh, we we have a hard time watching sinners under conviction go through that process that every sinner under conviction goes through. You know, we try to minimize, but they need to get all that repentance in there and all that realization that it really was our sin that had Christ on the cross. He really needed to do that for us. And liberal attempts at changing Christianity to make Jesus our example rather than the Savior we need, you know, are uh, just uh, knocked dead in the water by Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and um, Romans 3 there. So um, God looks at things differently than we do. 
So uh, I think I wrote for you there, in rejecting God, the cry of the Enlightenment was that man is the measure of all things. And Psalm 14 calls that the thinking of a fool. Have you ever heard that, by the way? Man is the measure of all things. It, it came out of the Enlightenment time, and they were basically saying Christians are wrong. You know, those that say that God is the measure of all things are wrong. Now man is the measure of all things. He is the one we judge things by. We don't need the idea of God. And one way or another, that is behind every political decision where they laugh at believers uh, and uh, say we need to change laws about human sexuality and other things uh, because God was wrong. And, and that's archaic human thinking. You know, the Bible's not the measure of all things. People are the measure of all things and what they want to do. And so you've got to adjust to people's self-definition. And Psalm 14 again says, that's how fools think, you know, that's how fools think, rejecting God. In what way does that go all the way back to the Garden of Eden? That's how Satan approached Adam and Eve. It was, wasn't did it? God say? Yeah, did God he say? It yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like to think about the juxtaposition of the words authority and autonomy. Um, so it's not the way they say it in movies and culture and things like that, you know, but really the central issue is people want to be self-autonomous. They want to rule themselves. Um, and so it's either that, rule yourself, or submit to God's authority and, and what God has said. So instead of God said it, that settles it. You know, we say God says it, now we'll question it, or maybe God didn't say it, maybe his followers said it to oppress people, you know. And Psalm 14 brings us back around and says that's the fool speaking, because the fool says in his heart there is no God. Um, yeah, that's good. That's good. And, and you know, it's interesting. Um, there are several passages uh, in the Old Testament where God's doing that very thing, isn't he? When the prophets speak, you know, God has an indictment against his people. Isaiah 1 starts that way, I believe, too, you know. Um, so come, let us reason together, says the Lord. But I'm going to be the talking. You sit there, God says, you know. Um, so if it was up to us, and I think it's really hard for us to escape this thinking, but if it was up to us, we'd line up everybody in this room, everybody that was in church this morning, everybody that lives in Danville, if we had a room big enough, everybody in the world. And we really can't help ourselves. We really put them from one side of the room to the other, and we say, okay, um, this person over here is very, very evil. I want them to be all the way on the other side of the room. I wish they weren't even in the room, you know. And that person over there is the best one we got. And then we start getting in there. You know, have you ever, have you ever been in, uh, and I guess they don't do this in school anymore because you can't point out differences too much and stuff, but have you ever been in a line where they said, okay, let's line up shortest to tallest, right? And we all know who the tallest person is. They go over there and who the shortest one is fairly obvious. They go over there. And then everybody else kind of gets in there somewhere and you start measuring yourself and you, you find yourself in that line. Well, we do that with moral things and we do that with uh, who, who's a better person and stuff like that. We're doing it in our minds anyway. You know, and humanly speaking, we line up the Adolf Hitler's all the way on the worst side of the room and the Mother Teresa's all the way on the best side of the room. 
and we put ourselves somewhere in there. And usually we're fairly generous in our own court assessment of ourselves. We say, you know, well, uh, you know, I'm not that bad a person. What God ought to do is take the, uh, you know, uh, me and every me and the guy behind me and everybody this way uh, to heaven. And then we get to the Dallas Cowboys and Hitler, you know, uh, uh, never mind. Sorry, George. Um, they're over there, you know. Um, and uh, God says that is just how you humans think, you know. From heaven's perspective, no one seeks me. No one is doing what I called them to do. Isaiah 64, 6 adds in the best things we do are just filthy rags before holy God. So because we do what we do with sinful motivations, even the best we do is just filthy stuff to God, you know. And uh, I think about the time that I cleaned a linoleum floor at my house uh, in uh, Macbeth Street in Hyattsville, Maryland. Um, at the insistence of my parents. I probably had had some role in dirtying it. Um, and I got the, the, the bucket there and I put the soap in there and got it warm, got the rags in there, had two or three of them. And I, you know, went into the water, wringed it out, got to the floor. I scrubbed, I scrubbed, I moved the bucket. I did the same thing, moved it all across the floor. And I worked hard, I worked sincerely, you know. But uh, what happened at the end of that time moving across the floor? I looked back and what did I see? A floor that was streaked with dirt. <laughs> Wasn't that I didn't sincerely try to make it better? I did. I had the best of intentions of making it better, but I didn't. Problem was there was dirt in the bucket. I didn't clean the bucket out before I started the whole process, Gary. <laughs> and so it didn't matter how sincere I was. And you think about all the government programs, you know, many of them intended to help struggling people. And maybe they did it first or something like that. But over time, just like Psalm 14 talks about corruption came in and things designed to help became things that were corrupted um, and became things people relied on rather than a, a, a work kind of system or things like that. All of them had good designs and meant to help. Some of them have actually perpetuated problems intergenerationally uh, and have needed reform. And then it's hard to reform anything once the government gets used to doing it, you know, and people get used to doing it. And politicians then get used to those people that are voting for them based on those perks and stuff like that. It gets very hard to separate yourself from all that because of the corruption in the human heart. So we look and say, I'm better than that person or I'm worse than that person. And God says what Psalm 14 says, all of us are corrupt, not just the atheistic fool, but we're corrupt, we don't do the good. In ourselves, we turn aside, we don't understand. We all need God. And of course, uh, he is talking about the person that is fully committed to those things. As Christians, we are glad they're included in Romans 3 because, you know, uh, we can't help it. We just, uh, we, we like to pat ourselves on the back. We want to think that we're good. I think one of the reasons why there's all this talk about forgiving ourselves is because of how upset we get with ourselves when we're, we, we're shown to be sinners rather than the person we hoped we would be, the person that would do the right thing, right? So Paul said, not I was the chief of sinners, but I am the chief of sinners. And that's where we need to camp out too. God says, you're in that room and you've lined everybody up based on what you think, but it's more like this. You're using a scale of one to a hundred with some people getting a big fat zero or a negative and others getting a hundred, 99, close to a hundred. 
but the scale I'm using in heaven is one to a million and none of you make it past a hundred. So from my perspective, there's just a lot of dirt on the floor. <laughs> you know, you try, even when you try to do your best and stuff. And so this is the core teaching really for us to embrace behind the gospel. It's what's meant by total depravity. Not that we do all the wicked things we could or that we don't try to do good things, but that we are totally alienated from God in our humanness before Christ's work of redemption. And we really do need Him or we've had it, you know. And I know everyone in this room and a good number that will listen later on believe that, but we need to tell it back to ourselves because, you know, uh, not only do we need to embrace the message that we're totally lost so that we'll really embrace the offer of salvation when it comes as an act of God's grace to us and turn to Christ, but we need to remember that when we later on put our own stock in our human efforts or we judge others for falling short. Well, we all fall short, right? So anyway, any thoughts on that or questions so far? How many times Wow. Well, at least these two, right? And and uh, Psalm ten. Did we already pass one in Psalm ten? Well, verse eleven I, I immediately popped out to me. Uh, well, verse four says God is in none of his thoughts, the wicked person. And verse eleven says he has said in his heart God has forgotten. He hides his face; he will never see. So it questions those things. What is that great psalm we're going to get to one day? Uh, that uh, the fellow's lamenting. Uh, he's, he's lamenting how, boy, it sure looks like the wicked are getting away with stuff. And I almost despaired and joined them. I'm, of course, paraphrasing now. But he says, until I went to church, until I went to the temple, and there I understood the day of reckoning is coming for those that reject God and, and, and refuse Him. It's a great one. We'll get to it one day. I think it's in the 70s. Um, well, let's look through this again, because we get down as this rolls through, and, um, and, and I love the, the play between Psalm 14.5 and Psalm 53.5. So if 53.5 said that, uh, you know, they encamped against the wicked, but they're going to be bones, you know, God's going to take care of them. Psalm 14.5 says, There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Many people have acted out against Christians. And I just want to take the time to, to get this because of how much of this was behind uh, the, uh, the atheistic, godless uh, views of things um, that, that came from enlightenment, starting with man is the measure of all things instead of God is the measure of all things. But someone uh, summarized for me, if you know, what was Nietzsche saying when he said God is dead? Well, there's a fool saying in his heart, there is no God, right? He, he said God is dead, and, and he meant that it's time for us to deal with the ramifications of the Enlightenment cry that man is the measure of all things, and to really get these Christians among us to stop insisting that there must be God and there must be Christian morality, or Jewish morality for that matter. So Nietzsche had a book called The Superman. Now I'll tell you, when I was a non-Christian, I read a lot of Nietzsche. And then I had a good history of philosophy class when I was a young Christian, 
where the man coming in March to speak to us, Dr. Bill Brown, walked us through some things, and it really helped put things in, in perspective about the godless philosopher Nietzsche. He is a, he's behind a whole bunch of the thinking that goes on today, but really the one behind him was Satan and some of the things said there. Here's what Nietzsche said. He said, we need courage for we believe that God is dead and he's not coming back. The idea of God is dead, he's not, it's not coming back. So we need courage to act on that. And we need to stop this chatter about people being valuable because God's their creator. What we need is to have the courage to become supermen. It's interesting that a Jewish comic strip writer created Superman to deal with Hitler later on. You know, which is awesome because it's a, I think he may have known, you know, what Nietzsche had done. But here's what Nietzsche said. Nietzsche said, when we speak of morality, we need to speak of the morality, the courageous morality of the atheist, the person who doesn't believe in God. Since there is no God, there is no heaven. That means this life is all there is. You need to have the courage to make yourself great no matter what. You need to become a superman. If the weak get in your way, you need to push them down, push them out of the way. Um, and some of y'all rulers out there in Europe ought to think in terms of, you know, our responsibility to take care of those that add something to society and deal with those that do not. So you're starting to get... Yeah. Behind, in our, in our last hundred years, behind the population myth, you know, the overpopulation myth and stuff like that, is there are weak people that need to get out of the way. Behind Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood and, um, you know, the eugenics movement to get rid of uh, those that were of inferior blood is what they said. We don't believe that. We believe all people are, have an inherent value. Um, the, uh, those who are uh, mentally um, you know, less and uh, have low IQs and things like that. We need to make sure they can't procreate. We need to get the, all these programs that came out were, um, but, but the first time it happened was, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, Hitler coming along and saying, hey, uh, Nietzsche talked about it. We need to be the super race. There's some inferior people that need to get, be gotten rid of. Jews are inferior, you know, uh, uh, gypsies are inferior, others are inferior and things like that. And it's chilling when you go back and see that some of the Nazis had interactions with people that were at the Dejarnet Center in Stanton, Virginia and other places and how they were admiring each other for eugenics plans and things like that. Do, do you know what eugenics is? It is, the, it is the taking of the lives of those who are inferior and also sterilizing so they can't go forward. That went hand in hand with racists shouldn't marry because, you know, I mean, if Ken Ham has done a great service. Him and an African-American pastor, Charles Ware, wrote a book, One Race, One Blood, a few years back. And they actually said, biologically, it's actually a good thing when there's a mixed marriage uh, because it strengthens the gene pool. It doesn't hurt it at all. It strengthens it, you know. Um, anyway, uh, but, the, you know, the interracial uh, marriage laws were based on evolution straight through, you know, and all these different stuff. Anyway, we're a little afield, but it, it comes down to that that, um, you know, uh, Hitler taught, uh, I'm sorry, Nietzsche taught that the strong man has a moral responsibility to make himself stronger and get the weak out of the way. 
That's what it meant to be a Superman. And you see how that affected Europe and still thinks people today. People think if they're smarter, they have, they have the right to pick on people. If they're stronger, they have a, a right to pick on people. Might makes right. You've heard that. And that's one of those atheistic philosophies. So it all goes hand in hand. And Psalm uh, 14 warns us about that. But verse 5 says, There, <laughs> uh, the workers of iniquity one day... When God gives uh, calls for account, they're going to be the ones in great fear. God is with the generation of the righteous. He will take care of His own. He's going to um, shame bad counsel. And the Lord is the refuge of the poor who look to Him. I don't think that sometimes those people that think they're great and all-powerful yeah. realize that what they do you know, is, is coming across to the people who know better as fools. Yeah. I mean, right now, right. we just talked to our son the other day. His wife is from Russia. Mm. She saw it lived out, didn't she? Yeah. And her family, though, is yeah. there, her mom and dad. Her dad, mm. I think, was a nuclear physicist for the, for the country. Mm. He makes, and his wife both were, you know, very high up. Yeah. They, they are making a mandate now that there's nobody in Russia that's allowed to leave. Wow. So, wow. in that... In instance, you're yeah. looking at a fool. Yeah, that's right. I'm yeah. very powerful, but yeah. in order to prevent you from possibly doing anything, yeah. I'm going to keep you here. Yeah, yeah, and and you see those godless attempts to use the uh, schools and colleges and universities as uh, to change everything, and they want the to tell you what you can can can't have on media and all the different things. It just it goes back because someone has said it well. You know, if if you turn away from uh, from, from, from God as the measure of all things, what happens is man uh, will insist on creating governments that you turn to for what you used to look to God for, you know. And as that happens, those who don't play nice and get down with the program, you want to silence and repress and, uh, you know, and it's sad to see more of that happening in America and we need to continue to preach uh, need for revival and awakening, and uh, I, I, don't you love our founding fathers? You know they they had so many checks and balances based on imbibing the truth of Psalm 14. Not all of them are Christians, but they knew that humans could be corrupt if they weren't held to account and held to higher rule. And so they had the foresight to get into their thinking, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal and they're entitled to the right to life. They're entitled to the right to liberty, freedom. They're entitled to the pursuit of happiness, you know, and uh, how personal property uh, ownership rights and thou shalt not steal away from those who are inherent in those kind of things. And uh, they developed such a great checks of balances. Um, they, they, they knew, I think they knew moments like now would come, you know. Do you know, uh, this is a quick aside for you guys. Do you know they even put one in we've never done? They even put a safeguard in we've never used, but we ought to at some point here. Do you know what it is? They slipped into the Constitution that the idea of a convention of states. Now some of you have heard of it and stuff, you know, that if uh, two-thirds of the state legislatures were fed up with what the national government was doing, they could call for a convention of states and each state through its House and Senate send two representatives to that convention. So all the states would send two. And then whatever was decided at that convention, if it went back to the states and in the state houses and senates were ratified by uh, four-fifths of those states, so at this point you need 40 of the 50, then whatever 
they put back whatever they decided in first the convention of states, then ratified when the when you got to 40, when the final one did it, the national leaders would have to have that in the Constitution. They couldn't. So you could do term limits. Nobody's there longer than 12 years or something like that. And you could do um, that. You've got to do what a lot of states do. You need to balance your budget, you know, and stuff like that. And if so they put that in knowing that there may come a time where the federal government tried to, you know, seize all the, uh, the state rule and stuff. But anyway, verse 7 anticipates Israel's future deliverance and restoration. Verse 7, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So we're told this is of David. They hadn't gone into captivity yet, but... Uh, perhaps he wrote it while on the run from Absalom, anticipating being restored to the throne. It's certainly before he would have any personal knowledge of the later captivity uh, of Israel and Judah to Assyria and Babylon. However, uh, Moses had predicted there could come a time when Israel be would be enslaved by other nations due to their sin. And those nations would be godless. They wouldn't believe in God. They'd had their own gods based on might makes right and human thinking. And perhaps David had that in the back of his mind. Uh, and I encourage you to, uh, every once in a while I bring up the passage that that's at, you know, but uh, Moses did say, you know, as part of the blessings and cursings talk, he said, because your hearts are wicked and you're going to turn away from Yahweh, there will come a time when you're in such sin that God will have to, uh, it, it's very picturesque, you're not going to like this picture, but <laughs> God told the people, um, you're getting into the land because of the wickedness of the people there, the land is vomiting them out. And guess what? If you do the same wicked things they do, the land will vomit you out too. But he gives hope in the Deuteronomy speeches, you know. He says, if you're ever in captivity to a foreign nation as strong as eagles, Babylon had weagle, you know, eagles everywhere as their signs and things like that. And you realize how far you've fallen and turn back to God, you pray toward, you know, Israel, then um, God will heal. And it's interesting Moses had written that. David talks about it in places like this, about the hope of future restoration for those who have turned from Yahweh. And then Solomon, when he dedicates the temple, actually prays those very things. God, won't you make this the kind of place that when your people sin against you and they get carried away to a foreign land like you, Moses said they would, won't you be the kind of God that when they turn and face toward the direction of the temple from whatever country they're in, won't you hear and heal and bring them back, bring us back and... and fulfillment of your promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. So it's really cool here. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captive his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. And of course, there's some future hints there to the messianic reign of Jesus Christ that we're all looking forward to. So we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.